The Lord be with you. Also with you. Uh, please be seated. And let me pray as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us uh, around your word once again in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and we pray that even as we um, mediate and discuss your word, uh, your spirit will open it to us and will open our hearts to you. And now as I speak, Lord, we, I pray that you will please help me to speak clearly and truthfully. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our friends, today's passage uh, is Exodus 24. Uh, you can find on pages 76 and 77 of the Church Bible. And in the middle of your bulletin, <clears throat> you will find a simple sermon guide uh, under the heading, The Sealing of the Covenant. Our friends, as we uh, begin this evening, let us just put ourselves uh, in the shoes of the Israelites in the first 23 chapters of this book of Exodus. Imagine ourselves and put ourselves there. Uh, this, this was what has happened to us. We have been living in Egypt in relative comfort and safety for the past 430 years. But then, we had become slaves of those who once respected us or who once honoured us before. Then they gave us these huge and almost impossible tasks to do. And our male children, the moment they were born, they were killed. So in our great anguish and in our sorrow, we cried out to our Lord. And the amazing thing was, He heard our cries. And He sent Moses. He sent Moses to be His instrument of rescue to deliver us out of Egypt and lead us into the Promised Land. We saw with our own eyes the great works of power that God did in Moses before Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. And it was in that final miracle when the scattered blood of the sacrificial Passover lamb kept us safe even while all the firstborn of the nation of Egypt were killed as the Lord passed through the land of Egypt on that fateful night. Pharaoh then had no choice but to let us go. And on our road to freedom, God parted the Red Sea for us so that we can travel and cross it on dry land. And then as Pharaoh tried to chase us down and kill us, he closed it back again and drowned them. And in spite of our ingratitude, our complaints, and our unhappiness with God that we uh, sort of like uh, met Moses uh, to speak to God about, in spite of all this ingratitude and unhappiness, God provided bread from heaven, manna from heaven. And in the evening, he, sailed, he sent quails from the sea. And we caught, we caught those quails and we, we, we killed them and then we, we, we eat the meat. And when we were thirsty, God provided water from the rocks. And when we were attacked, like we were attacked by the Amalekites, God delivered us from them. And finally, as we saw during the past two weeks in Exodus 20 to 23, we are now camped at the foot of God's holy mountain, Mount Sinai. And the Lord spoke to us from the mountain, and it was so scary. The smoke, the lightning, the trembling of the mountain, the thunder, as God spoke to us as He directly gave us the Ten Commandments. 
And we dare not go with Moses. We told Moses, hey, you go yourself to receive further instructions from God because it is too terrifying for us to face God. So what comes next? Oh, well, our passage today from Exodus 24 picks up that story. Please turn with me to page 76. And also, uh, as I mentioned before, there's this sermon guide in the middle of the bulletin. And, and the passage starts this way. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. The scene now is set with Moses still up there on the mountain with God. And God now gave him very specific instructions on how Israel was to appear before him after the covenant has been sealed. It was like uh, two kings to an international treaty. God being the greatest king, summoning the small king Israel to appear before him after the treaty has been uh, rationalized and inaugurated and sealed. And notice how verse 1 sets out the order in which this is to be done. Firstly, Moses and Aaron and two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were to appear before God. Why them? Well, we were told later in Exodus 28 that Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, together with Aaron's two other sons, Eliezer and Ithamar, will be the priests to mediate the people's meetings with God. So, they, are, they were going to be the priestly family. Now, secondly, the people were to be represented by 70 of the elders of Israel. And who, the, who are these people? Well, we find more details about these 70 of the elders of Israel from Numbers 11. And Numbers 11 tells us that these are the inner circle, the creme de la creme, if you like, among the senior members of Israel, who in Numbers 11 verse 25 will be anointed with God's Spirit to share in the governing of God's people together with Moses. So here you have the priestly family and there you have the, the elders representing the nation Israel. Or here we see Moses above all of these people because he is going to be the mediator between the people and God, but also part of them. And then this group of priestly people and this group of uh, the ordinary people. And now, God said, make no mistakes about this. Just don't draw too near to me. Just make sure that only Moses come near to me. He said this in um, uh, verse 2. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. The rest of the people were still at the bottom of, the, of Mount Sinai. They were not to come up at all to the middle of the mountain. Only Moses could approach God. And we will come to that in more detail a little bit later. The rest, that is the 70 elders, were to stay at a distance and the ordinary folks stayed at the bottom of the hill. Now the scene changes in verse 3. Moses had come down to the bottom of the, of the mountain and the people who were camped at the foot of the mountain, they clambered around Moses. You can imagine the scene. Moses had been up in the mountain speaking with God. They wanted to know what had happened. And so Moses explained to them. They gave them the details of the covenant code that the dean dealt with over the past two weeks. 
and how those decrees would govern the practical events in their lives as they journeyed to the Promised Land and later as they conquered and occupied the Promised Land itself. And how did the people respond? The people said, all the words that the Lord had commanded, we will do. But this cannot be just chakap chakap. So Moses took three concrete actions here in verses 4 to 7, uh, in verses 4 to 8. Moses took three actions. The first action he took was, he wrote it all down and called it in verse 7 as the book of covenant. A hard record, so to speak, to remind the people of the promises uh, that they had made in this two-party treaty. The people promising to obey what God had commanded and God, on the other hand, accepting them as his own treasured people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that you can find in uh, chapter 19, verses 5 to 6. That's the first thing he did. He wrote it down so that the people will remember. Secondly, Moses built an altar for God. Now, an altar represents God himself. And it is a place where animal sacrifices were made. Uh, blood sacrifices were made in the, in the Old Testament uh, on this altar. Although sometimes it's used to offer incenses as well. And uh, besides the, the altar to the Lord, Moses also built 12 pillars to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So what do we see here? We see uh, that, God, uh, that Moses had built uh, a, a picture a, a picture to represent these two parties. First, God on one hand, and then the 12 pillars representing Israel on the other hand. That's the second thing he did. Moses built an altar and the 12 pillars. And thirdly, Moses uh, initiated or uh, participated in the sealing or official marking or signing of the covenant as we will understand it uh, these days. And Moses got some energetic and strong young men to bring the sacrificial animals, or tie them to the altar and cut them so that the lifeblood will flow out and be collected in basins. And half of the blood he threw on the altar to signify that this is God's part being carried out. And the other half, uh, and then he followed it with reading of the book of the covenant uh, to the people. And when the people repeated once again that all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient, Moses then took the other half of the blood and threw it on them to signify that now they have also accepted the signing of the covenant, sealing of the covenant in blood. And now friends, the, the, the using of blood to confirm or seal a treaty was a common practice in human history to show its importance. It's not only in the Middle East or in Palestine, but throughout the world, in all regions of the world, blood has always been used as a means to seal an important agreement. This was because a living creature would have had to give up its life to bring the agreement into force. In other words, the life that is lost served to restore once again the lost relationship between these two parties, either through the war or dispute or anger or enmity, whatever it is, the life that is lost serves to bring together once again these two parties who were at, at, uh, at odds with each other before. And from now on, the destinies of both parties were as, uh, were, as it were 
irretrievably bound together by this blood. And 1,500 years later, in the New Testament, from our previous series uh, of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews pointed to this ritual. If you look at the guide now, um, in the bulletin, uh, can you see Hebrews 9, 18 to 20 on page 6? And let me read that to you. The, the writer writes this way, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Now, this passage has been taken from a bigger passage uh, where the writer of Hebrews was speaking about the sealing of the new covenant with blood, just as the first covenant had been sealed with blood before. But for the new covenant, it will not just be sealed with the blood of any ordinary animal, no matter how perfect and without blemish it was. It must be sealed with the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. Because Jesus alone could deal with the sin of humanity against God. For as Hebrews 8 in verse 22, which is not included in the bulletin, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So in the new covenant, the sealing must be done through the blood of Jesus only. And this can only, because the blood of Jesus only can deal with the forgiveness of sin. And with this sealing of the covenant, it points to the restored relationship with God that is only made possible through Jesus. Well, our passage continues to show us or to give us a glimpse of what um, it means to be restored to God from the first covenant, a foretaste, if you like, of fellowshipping with God. And verse 9 says this, that Moses and Aaron and Aaron's two sons uh, Nadab and Abihu, and the elders representing Israel went up to the mountain as commanded by God. But I want you to listen to what the first part of verse 10 says. The first part of verse 10 says this, And they, all of them, saw the God of Israel. Now, at this point, we must stop to ask, how can anyone see God and still stay alive? Well, we have no absolute answer for this. But the second part of verse 10 might give us a hint. The second half of uh, uh, verse 10 says this, There was under God's feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. The people were given, as it were, a glimpse of the form of God, possibly reflected from the mirror-like clearness of the pavement of sapphire on which God had placed His feet. There's another view. Eh? Another view is that the people were so filled with awe and fear of the Almighty God that they dare not even lift their, their eyes above God's feet. So all they saw was the feet of God, as is written here. Another hint comes from our previous verse too, where God had commanded Moses not to allow the others to come near. Now, all we are sure from this passage is that they were only able to see something of God from a distance, but we were not told the details. 
Still others think that it could be the pre-incarnate second person of our triune God that they made. But this is at best speculative. We cannot know for certain and the passage doesn't say. But later we know in Exodus 33, God again graciously granted Moses a look at his back. But not his face. His back only. As God said to Moses on that occasion, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. But the crucial thing now here on Mount Sinai during this time was that they knew, the people knew they were in the presence of the Almighty God. And that fellowship that God had man from creation and which had been broken in the fall was once again experienced, although very briefly, on that mountain after the first covenant was inaugurated. And verse 11 told us that they were unharmed. They had beheld God, they ate and drank in the presence of God, and they were unharmed. And so we move on in our passage to verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. Now Moses had written down the Book of Covenant Code, presumably on parchment and with ink, but God has written down the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, and God wanted to pass them to Moses so that Moses, in his turn, would instruct the people to obey. Now, so Moses at that moment went up to the mountain with his assistant Joshua, leaving the rest of the company in the care of Aaron and her. Now, just to sweep up a couple of possible questions here, uh, people may be asking who are Joshua and her? Were they part of the group of the 70 elders? Well, Joshua and her were first mentioned in Exodus 17 when Joshua led the battle against the Amalekites, and her was also mentioned here as one of the two people who held up Moses' arms. You see, during the war with the Amalekites, Moses had to hold the, the staff of God in his hand. And every time his hands grew uh, weary and tired and his hands dropped, his arm dropped, the Israelite lost and the Amalekites uh, were victorious. So he, Moses had to keep his arms up all the time. So every time his arms were up, the, the Amalekites lost to the Israelites. So Aaron stood on one side of, God, uh, of Moses and held up his arm and her stood on the other side. So you see that uh, Joshua and her were mentioned here in Exodus 17. But they were, they were not listed uh, like the others in uh, Exodus 24 verses 1 and 9. And they do not appear to be part of the 70 elders as well. As uh, verses 13 and 14 seem to say, they seem to be uh, apart from this group of elders. So Joshua and her, they appear to be the very close associates of uh, Moses on the one part and Aaron on the other part. And, uh, and uh, yeah, their names were not mentioned until here. And so Moses, to continue with our passage, Moses took Joshua and went higher up to the mountain and he waited for six days and on the seventh day God called him for the final briefing and what did Israel see at the foot of the mountain they saw that the appearance of the glory of God was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain and Moses went into the cloud 
to be with God for 40 days and 40 nights to receive God's instructions for His people. Those detailed uh, instructions will fill the following chapters of Exodus 25 to 31, which we will touch on in the following weeks to come. And by describing the period as 40 days and 40 nights, Scripture wants us to know that Moses stayed up there with Joshua watching nearby for a prolonged period of time. In fact, we were told by Moses himself in Deuteronomy 9 verse 9 that Moses did not eat or drink during this whole time of 40 days and 40 nights. And so, as we come to the conclusion of our passage uh, of uh, Exodus 24, what things can we bring home with us tonight? I suggest three things. First of all, let's look at the fellowship with God. In the bulletin on page uh, 7, if you turn to it on the bottom of the page, in the bulletin I have included a passage from Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 20. Uh, it's part of our passage, uh, the bigger passage that we read just now, which reads like this. Likewise, the cup after that eaten they had eaten Jesus saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now we have seen how Moses inaugurated the first covenant with the blood of animals. But now we are now in the new covenant that has been sealed with Jesus' own blood. It is interesting to note that this fellowship meal which the church celebrates as the Last Supper was held before Jesus went up to the cross. In other words, before he shed his blood. Could this be a hint of the now and the not yet? The partial fulfillment, as you were, of restored fellowship with God? And for it was also during this meal that, fell, uh, that uh, Jesus promised the final banquet to come when all the faithful would be gathered together with him in heaven to celebrate the full fellowship uh, with God. As one Christian writer writes, and I paraphrase, at the Holy Communion, Christians look uh, at the past, celebrate the present, and also look towards the future. Christians look back to the past, to 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died for our sins so that we might live. In the present, we look around as we partake of this Holy Communion, uh, as we celebrate this fellowship meal together in remembrance of Him. And Christians look forward to that glorious future when we will come into full fellowship with God when Christ comes back and brings us back to Him, with Him, to the great banquet in the sky. That's the first thing, fellowshipping with God. Secondly, remember that on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God, writing on tablets of stone. Hear what St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, that is at the bottom of our page uh, in the middle of the bulletin. Let me read that to you. Uh, Paul writes this way, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Christians show by the example of their lives, by the way they live their lives in obedience to God, that the gospel message is like a letter that has been personally written by Jesus Christ himself, not on stone, but on their living hearts. Christians are letters written by Christ himself, not with ink, 
but with the Holy Spirit. And those letters have been delivered by the Apostle to be read by the world, pointing them to the, pointing them to the message of love and salvation in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Now, one last thing, the allusion to being written on human hearts rather than on tablets of stone also reminds us of the prophetic words of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, that in the new covenant, the law of God will not be written on tablets of stone, but the law of God will be written on the hearts of the faithful. That's the second thing. Uh, the, on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. Thirdly, in the historical timeline, the law was given after Israel has been delivered from slavery in Egypt. In other words, the grace of God came before the law of God was given. Grace came before the law. Now, Moses actually reminded uh, Israel about this in Deuteronomy 7 as Israel camped at the border of the promised land before they go into the promised land. Moses told them this, it is not about you, Israel. It is not about you or how plentiful or multitudinous you were. It's not about you. It is because God loved you and chose you and was keeping the oath that God has made to your forefathers before you. And so it is with us today, friends, with us Christians today. It's not about us, how attractive or how tall or how short or how handsome or how beautiful we are or what we do in church or in the uh, social arena out there. It's not, what, it's not about us doing what we deserve to be served, saved. It is because God chose us and loves us and sent His Son to die for us so that we believing in Him and trusting in Him will be saved. And we only have to do two things. Scripture tells us this. One is to love Him and to love each other. And two, to go into the world, to tell the world the gospel message, to point the world to the gospel message in the, the salvation of Jesus Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The grace of God calls us not to be passive Christians, not, not to be passive believers, if there is such a thing. It also calls us that when we obey this call, we should not be uh, just obeying it mechanically, but we should be obeying it from the heart. Therefore, the grace of God calls us to be active practitioners of the gospel, reaching out with the gospel message to everyone. And above all, the grace of God calls us to be worthy of being described as letters written by the Lord Jesus Himself with the ink of the Holy Spirit, even as we look forward eagerly to the day when we will see God and fellowship fully and completely with Him in that great banquet in the sky on that last day of human history. What a thing to look for, we Christians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the strength of your spirit to follow Jesus truly and to love him dearly. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to sing the clinical.
Song of Simon, found on page 10.